Hello and welcome to The REIT Report. I'm your host, Sarah Borg from Quito, and joining me to share his insights into the world of commercial real estate is Michael Sonnenfeld, founder and chairman of Tiger 21, a peer membership organization of high net worth current and former entrepreneurs, investors, and top executives. Tiger 21 members collectively manage personal assets of over $85 billion. Michael, thanks for speaking with The REIT Report today. Thanks for having me. So real estate is the largest portion of the Tiger 21 investor portfolios at 27%. Do you expect that share to remain stable for the short to medium term? Real estate has been the number one asset allocation for Tiger members for probably the entirety uh, of our existence. We're now in our 21st year, and it's fluctuated between 27 on the low side uh, and 33% on the high side, but it has always been the number one asset class among our members, and really that's for two reasons. Uh, One is it's the asset class where our members created the most wealth that allowed them to join Tiger 21 in the first place. And secondly, it's the asset class that members like to invest in, mostly out of the public markets, but not exclusively, uh, where they can have direct ownership in mostly income-producing properties. So it has a lot of unique benefits, uh, and our members have a lot of expertise, and that's why it's likely to stay the top asset for a long time. And how would you describe economic fundamentals for commercial real estate at this time? You know, uh, what our members are really doing is trying to not use the word real estate as a monolith, but to really break it down into its component parts. I would say over the years, people tend to think of real estate as a single asset class, as if components of the real estate market act in tandem. And while there's always been differences, I don't think there's ever been a time where those differences are as profound as today. So if you think about the retail sector, the retail sector is frankly in uh, in a difficult strait that could continue in a negative way for a long time to come. The online digital purchasing revolution obviously dominated by Amazon, but not exclusively the uh, ability to buy things online and the consumer expectation has roughly doubled or tripled the uh, share of retail sales that are being made through online versus uh, physical retail. You know, the pandemic has not only accelerated that, but we were arguably over retail to begin with. If you look at the square foot per capita, Uh, allocated to retail space in the United States. It dwarfs Western Europe, and people thought we had already too much retail space. And you combine that with the pandemic and the ease with which people have been shopping at home, and you can see retail is going to be struggling for a long, long time. By the way, even within retail, there's opportunities, particularly on the distress side. My partner used to say, there's no good and bad real estate, there's just good and bad deals. Obviously, as prices adjust, if you can buy at a low enough price, you can take something that has challenges and still make money out of it. But on the other end of the spectrum, for the moment, industrial is king, in part fueled by the very same phenomenon, the last mile deliveries, all of those local warehouses, 
that are uh, part of the delivery chain to get the goods and services that are now being bought online uh, delivered to the consumer. Uh, so you've had uh, really a tale of two cities, industrial largely on fire, retail, uh, to mix a metaphor, burning. In the middle, you have the more complicated story of office and uh, residential. Outside of the uh, gateway cities and particularly outside of New York, you know, income producing properties have uh, stabler rents, particularly when they're workforce housing where people continue to be employed. And uh, there's a steadiness to those cash flows and sometimes a uh, buffer of safety that has, uh, you know, had uh, in the worst month last year, people wondering whether people would pay rent. But by and large, things like workforce housing has done quite well over the last year. Less so uh, in, for instance, New York City residential, because one could argue that the single factor that uh, determines the health of a great city is population growth. Uh, there are many reasons why that might be concluded, but if you believe that, you can see that the uh, population is exiting uh, Manhattan and therefore all of uh, New York City, and therefore uh, at every level where prices are set at the margin, the marginal demand is down, and so you have you know significant. In, uh, downturns in occupancy and collections pretty much across the board in residential in New York, uh, even on the condominium side or uh, co-op side, the purchase side. The pandemic has sent enough people out of the city who think they'll never return. The history is over time. These things adjust. You know, after 9-11, it took a little while, but New York came back stronger than ever. That doesn't happen on its own. It takes great leadership, who the mayor is and, and governor and what the federal programs are. But, you know, London and New York have been uh, world-class cities for hundreds of years and likely to remain so. But you'd have to say that the residential outlook in New York and some of the other central cores is stressed. And I'd say the one, uh, the one other category that people talk a lot is office. Where are we going with office? Are people going to demand more personal space because of distancing requirements in the future? That would suggest more office demand. But virtually every business that has office functions has functioned uh, remotely over the last year and opened their eyes not to the fact that they don't need an office, but that the role of the office may well change. So I would say that the bloom is off on office. It's clearly a long time, very important asset, but it doesn't have the uh, momentum at this point that it had in the past. And uh, we're going to have to see how the trends shake out once the pandemic is over and, and companies start rethinking their use of office space and how much they demand employees to uh, return to the office. Now, you've already mentioned several property types. Um, what do you see as some of the most enduring impacts of the pandemic on other key sectors within real estate? Clearly, uh, I didn't talk about the entertainment sector, hotels, restaurants, uh, amusement parks. Those are all sort of wild cards. It's interesting because there's some counterintuitive situations. You know, restaurants had to close their doors, and obviously any restaurant that's focused its revenues on people eating in the restaurant, that's the traditional business, uh, has been devastated this year. But in the quick service industry, 
you know, a curious thing happened. The, the quick service industry started by having, you know, small 50, 100 table restaurants uh, like any of the chains that you know, and the drive-in became an afterthought and a bigger and a bigger revenue driver. But a lot of the better quick service uh, restaurants pivoted last year. They had to shut down their dining rooms and pivot completely to a drive-through, perhaps delivery business. And shockingly, profitability rose. Nobody really had any idea that the dining rooms and uh, the labor required to keep the dining rooms clean and uh, functioning actually was a drag on earnings. So you, you have thousands, if not tens of thousands of quick service restaurants where the dining rooms are dark and they were more profitable in 2020 during the pandemic than in 2019. So it's the infinite adaptability of the human entrepreneur that uh, adapts to these kinds of changes. Uh, that would be one really amazing uh, example. But you know, across the board, you have these use cases. How soon will people get back to uh, going to Broadway and to movie theaters and to sporting games. I think uh, most people, when they go through a uh, security detector at the airport, don't think twice about it anymore. For people old enough to remember 30 years ago, there were no security detectors, and it took a little while for the extra time and the, and the extra care and packing that one had to do. But most people don't think twice about going through a security detector. And I suspect that with many of these public venues, you're going to have some version of a security detector, whether it's a temperature, which you now can do automatic, automatically uh, where a computer reads it. You know, you, you very often go in someplace now and somebody reads the temperature with a thermometer. But that can be done in automated uh, computer technology. So that would be uh, an example. And maybe uh, spacing requirements uh, will be a little different or hours of operation will be extended so fewer people can be at any given time. But, you know, over time, once, once the vaccine takes hold, and obviously we hope that'll be soon, estimates of four to six months, you're going to see many of these venues opening up, but perhaps with changes in service or changes in how one gets into them that uh, over time will become quite accustomed to. You know, if you walk down the streets of any city today, hopefully the majority of people are masked. That would have been uh, jolting or jarring to our senses uh, nine months ago. But nine months from now, people won't even notice when people are wearing masks, uh, assuming people will still be wearing masks for some time. You, I've walked down the streets in Tokyo, and it always surprises me, all the people wearing masks. Well, my guess is the next time I'm in Tokyo, I won't even notice it. Now, in 1980, you led the Harborside Financial Center transformation in New Jersey, which was the largest U.S. commercial renovation at the time. Can you tell us a bit more, a bit more about the project and your background in real estate? Sure. So in 1929, the Pennsylvania Railroad built what was then the largest building in the world to be its, its uh, distribution center. What it was, was on the very shore of New Jersey facing Manhattan. It was actually across from where the World Trade Centers were and rebuilt World Trade Center today. But it, what it really meant is it was at the eastern end of the United States. That's where all the rail cars 
came from all across the United States with whatever goods, they, whether it was farm goods or manufactured goods, and they got to the waterfront. And then those goods were loaded onto ships for Europe and beyond. And then the reverse happened, that ships would come in with such goods. This is long before containers. These were offloaded by hand. And this particular facility was the uh, building in the world that had piers that the rail cars went right out in the middle. And the building was so large that on its side, it was longer than the Empire State Building is tall. In the game Trivial Pursuit, it was the only building that had an internal roadway on the second floor that was a quarter of a mile long or something. And it was just this amazing two and a half million foot building. Uh, that doesn't seem so big today because, you know, they're buildings that are that size and larger. But in 1929, it was the largest building in the world. And it was only eclipsed by the Pentagon, which came into being a few years later. In the early 70s, I was working there. The building was owned by my soon-to-be wife's family and my uh, father-in-law's brother, their real estate company. And, and they saw the building largely as a run-down uh, industrial building, and that's how they were operating it. And I had this idea when I was 17. I was uh, working there in the summer to convert it into a major modern facility that would house the back offices of Wall Street, which were 3,000 feet away across the Hudson River, and Wall Street was bursting out of the seams at that time, needing computer space. And uh, the computer departments didn't want to be sent to purgatory or Siberia, you know, 10 miles or 20 miles away. But if they could go to a place like Harborside, it was a five-minute ride on the subway that went under the Hudson and was a much better solution. I just had this idea while I was literally meditating on the pier one day, looking across the water and back. And it took me about seven years to figure out how to ultimately acquire the building with a partner. And it was the bet of a lifetime. It's one of those things you can only afford to do once. And uh, we acquired it in 1982 and about six months later signed our first lease for what was then one of the top 10 banks in America called Bankers Trust. Today, they're owned by Deutsche Bank, but Bankers Trust was growing rapidly. They needed a data center uh, and they took uh, what was previously literally a freezer building eight stories high that stored things like meats and turkeys and cheeses and uh, God knows what. Uh, and we emptied it out, hollowed it out, took everything out but the floors and the structure, and uh, they converted it into a worldwide data center. And once that happened, the rest was history. It became arguably the most successful real estate transaction in metropolitan area history. The rest is kind of the stuff uh, legends are made of. I was sort of a mayor of my own city at the age of uh, 25 and then sold it when I was 30. Wow. You've obviously seen a lot of changes in the industry. What are some of the more intriguing trends in real estate that are catching your eye today? I think the, uh, the one that was most interesting is when I came into the real estate business, it was dominated by entrepreneurs, by uh, really amazingly creative brilliant, lucky, hardworking, mostly men, uh, fewer women. But it was, it, was a, it was a business dominated by individuals. And um, the shift occurred in the 90s. In the 90s, uh, long after I'd started, I had sold Harborside, there was a market crash in 87, real estate market crash, well, the stock market that was followed. And then there was what was called the savings and loan crisis. 
And when the savings and loan crisis happened, the federal government had to create an agency to take over these failing banks because they had to protect the depositors' money using FDIC insurance. And when they did, they would take over the bank. They would protect all of the depositors. So effectively taking over the bank meant that they bought all of the assets, meaning the mortgages primarily that these banks owned. And all of a sudden they had to start auctioning them off and they knew they couldn't auction them off one at a time. They could only do it in portfolios because there were so many billions of dollars. It just was impractical and they wanted to be efficient about it. And for the first time, real estate was being sold in portfolios until that the vast majority of sales was a building by building type of uh, sale or mortgage by mortgage. By then, I had formed a company called Emerson Company, E-M-M-E-S, and we were uh, among the first to realize that the analytical tools that one uses to buy a portfolio are quite different. They're quite different from traditional real estate. In fact, they had a lot to do with securities and portfolio analysis that was uh, in the ascendancy uh, on Wall Street when thinking about uh, investment portfolios. And so what, what you saw is the beginning of the growth of REITs in the 80s and 90s, uh, the increasingly uh, ability of institutions to see real estate as an institutional asset class and to start using the analytical tools that had been developed largely uh, on Wall Street. And so uh, I'd say the single biggest thing that's happened in 40 years is that inst that real estate has become an institutional asset class. There are obviously still some very large individual families that have significant holdings, but now the the industry is dominated largely by institutional holdings. You know, Blackstone, I, I think, would be number one, uh, some extraordinary uh, amount, $160 billion of real estate equity, you know, spread across lots of things. So, uh, and, and obviously technology changes as well, changes the trends. You have things today like uh, in residential buildings, the, ki the kind of common facilities, uh, internet facilities, and um, the way in which uh, apartments have gotten smaller uh, in places where some of it is micro uh, apartments, but the ability to have uh, more common features so that the individual units can be smaller is a, another major trend. And, you know, I think the other is the uh, growth in the gateway cities, particularly New York, San Francisco, uh, Boston, where uh, you have these concentrations of industries that are really 24-7 kind of industries that are driving, you know, massive residential and uh, related developments. Now, you mentioned REITs. Uh, the REIT industry has evolved from a group of core property sectors to embrace a whole new range of property types today. Do you see room for more change within the REIT sector? Well, there will be, of course. Uh, it will continue to evolve because whenever you can disaggregate something into a subcategory that much more defines your interest. When REITs started out, there were some, you know, first there were real estate REITs, then there were residential or office 
or storage REITs. They they started focusing on a single property type. Now you get you can find geographies within a property type. You can find age. Some REITs are just buying new uh, properties or developing new properties, while others specialize. So I think because of the securities industry, you know, you had something called an index fund, and then the ETF industry took off so that instead of having to buy the index fund, you could buy an ETF on almost any theme that you want. And I think that the read the read industry is really, you know, doing the same. A good example is life science REITs. Used to be lab REITs where you have these great drug companies. Would that have originally been subsumed within an office REIT or maybe an industrial REIT? But here's a specialized product type that's worthy of its own focus on investment. So I think it's just going to continue to evolve as new property types do. Uh, if you think of a retail REIT, well, obviously now you have community center REITs, you have you know, shopping center, uh, you have malls, Some, most of the malls are in trouble, a few are doing well. I think the REIT, the REIT industry is just simply going to continue to evolve as uh, new property types or subtypes catch investors' fancy and they want the kind of benefits that a, a REIT focused on that one property type can bring. Right. And Michael, my final question is, what will be the three biggest changes in real estate by 2030? That's a great question. I think that uh, by 2030, some of these trends that we were talking about will start to evolve, meaning the office. I, I suspect office and retail will have new evolutions as a result of uh, what's been started here. I would look at artificial intelligence this is the largest, maybe the two important trends that are coming up globally are artificial intelligence and climate change. Those both have dramatic potential to impact on, on the read and the real estate industry because climate change is going to require rethinking not only the uh, production of power and how real estate is situated to use that power, but the efficiency with which the power is used. So you're going to have a, a lot more value placed in efficient properties, and that'll become a much, much larger factor. And also climate change will drive uses of real estate in new ways that we're only beginning to think about in terms of where it's situated and what the size is and configuration. And artificial intelligence, frankly, is going to have an impact in terms of not only the way that it's able to control real estate, there's a huge industry of different types of electronics that, you know, whether it's opening and shutting doors or opening and shutting air conditioning or turning lights on and off or diagnosing problems, the artificial intelligence is going to seep into every aspect. But the biggest is that 25% of the jobs in America today are in one way or another at risk because of automation and artificial intelligence. And up till now, probably the biggest impact has been in the way you have uh, warehouses configured. You know, if you look at a warehouse today versus a warehouse of the past, the amount of technology completely changes how high the ceilings can be. And because you have these now robotic trucks going through warehouses, picking and packing without human intervention, uh, so you can have 24-7 operations without any people. So technology has had a dramatic change in the warehouse, but it's going to have just as much uh, change in the office because the next wave of artificial 
artificial intelligence is going to change office workers' jobs. You know, you can have computers now doing uh, legal work, accounting work, answering phones, and uh, in the medical, uh, it'll be uh, just amazing. I guess the last area, my guess is in a growth area, it's in the life sciences area. The way we've just fought the pandemic has revealed these new technologies that are going to transform medicine forever. And so uh, I think it's likely we're going to have growth in life science buildings where labs and people are uh, inventing the new medicines for the future. You just look at what's happening in Boston in terms of life sciences uh, and the impact life sciences have on the real estate economy in Boston. That would blow your mind. And uh, so those are some of the trends I'd be looking for. Great, Michael. That's been really interesting. And thank you so much for spending time with the REIT Report today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, please subscribe or leave a review for the REIT Report by visiting iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. 